Would you guys pray with me as we uh, get ready to jump into Joel this morning? Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for, uh, for gathering your people together this morning. I thank, you for, I thank you for that song. I thank you for Jesus who, who makes the darkness tremble, who silences our fears. I thank you for that good news, Lord. And I pray that you make it uh, alive for us this morning, that you really uh, get it into our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Lord, I pray that over the next few minutes you would say what you once said, that you would have each one of us hear. Uh, what you want us to hear, and that you would move in us, that we would see you for who you truly are, that we'd behold you as you truly are, and we'd be uh, able to worship you in truth. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. I want my life to be a good life. I want my life to be a good life, and I bet you want your life to be a good life too, who doesn't? We probably have some differences of opinion about what the good life uh, would look like or, or what uh, maybe what some people would call the abundant life, what that would look like. We might uh, not agree on what that would look like. Like some might want a life like of glamour and fame. Some might think that's the good life or the abundant life. Some might want to like do some porch sitting in the mountains. Uh, some might want a life of play or a life of inventing or a life of entrepreneurship or a life of romance and travel, a life full of family time, or some other dream, some other idea that you have about what a good life looks like. But I think that all this stuff in the end, it really fails to express what we really, really want, what we all really want. What we really want is a life full of being loved, a life full of purpose, a life full of hope, a life full of joy, and a life full of peace, a life full of ease. I think everything else that we wrap up our ideas and the good life, uh, for the good life, is just our own ideas of what it might take for us to actually feel all these deeper things that we really want. But the hard reality is that none of our dreams will fully deliver what we really want. How could they in this place where everybody dies? Where we lose people, where we lose time, we lose life. I mean, the truth, the reality is that we're sick, that we've all got some sort of incurable disease and we're dying from it. And this is not an abundant life, it's finite. There isn't enough of it to hold all that deeper stuff that we want from it, but it's all we've got. And our ideas of what, make up, uh, of what to make of the time we have are often all we've got to go on, and so we just chase after those things. We may chase success, we may chase some sort of escape, we may chase uh, some sort of recognition or whatever glimmers the most for each one of us, whatever promises us some taste of what's truly good. You want a life that's good. We all want a life that's good. So do I. Now, I'm a bit of a dreamer, and I love to, like, think of big ideas for the future. I don't even know if I love to do it. I just do it. You know, I just think of the future, and I have big plans. And in my 20s, I think I really believe that if I could achieve some of these things that I had dreamed up, then, then I would have the life that I'd always wanted. 
You know, and I wanted a lot. I wanted to own property in downtown Augusta. I wanted to start a business. I wanted to start a church. I wanted to have no financial worries. And eventually I wanted to have a family and have some kids who would get to live some sort of downtown childhood that I thought was, would be amazing and awesome. And I chased those dreams. Claire and I chased those dreams together for, a while, for quite a while. We risked a lot in the pursuit. And I remember, like, during that time in my 20s, really going after some things and telling some people um, who raised objections to some of the risks that we might be taking that I just wanted to do it while I was still young, like before I had kids. And if I would go after it before I had kids, then it wouldn't be selfish. But if I went after things and took all those risks after I had kids, then it, then it would be. I don't know. It made sense to me then. But in the end, Claire and I, we bought property. We did buy property downtown and live downtown, and we opened a business And we were working really hard towards some life that we had dreamed up, and and we, we lost it all. We lost it all. But if I'm honest, I found out that losing it all was the best thing that could have happened. I didn't know it in the moment, like during that time when I was chasing all this stuff, but most of the time during those few years, I was miserable. Like I was stressed. And I was scared to death of failure because I thought that failing would mean like the end of my chance at a good life. It made me a poor husband. It made me a poor friend. Like losing everything, I found that I wanted something more than I had dreamed up, something more than I could dream up. Like in my pride, I couldn't have seen it, but then in my forced humility and in my weakness, It became clear. I wanted a life that was good, but the life that's good looks different than I had ever imagined or that I ever could have imagined. So today we're looking at the third chapter. It's the final chapter of Joel, this tiny book that's found in this uh, tiny group of books in the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets, and I think we're going to find it helpful. As Reggie has said while covering the first couple chapters of this book, Joel really builds this entire work uh, off of what he and other biblical prophets call the day of the Lord. Joel starts with some prophecy that that looks to their immediate future and the the story of Joel's original audience, and and then he voices what's going to come about and why it's going to happen. And Joel writes about this dreadful like swarm of locusts that overtakes the earth and strips it of all its, uh, you know, all its fruit and whatever, takes everything from the people. And then he goes on to warn that the day of the Lord is near when God would judge his own people and he would send foreign armies to overtake them in the same way that these locusts had overtaken the land. Because of their idolatry and because of their sin, he was going to send an army to overtake them. And then Joel goes on to write about how the day of the Lord will not only bring this judgment, but it will also bring restoration for his people. It will be a day when everything that has been taken away from them will be restored, and it will be better than it ever was before. And then here today in chapter 3, which we're going to read from in a bit, Joel continues to write concerning the day of the Lord. And he continues to go from there, talking about the day of the Lord and how God will then turn his judgment from his own people and towards the surrounding nations and Israel's enemies. 
And somewhere along the way, particularly near the, uh, particularly near the end of the passage, you start to get the idea that the prophet hasn't just been talking about his immediate audience and their immediate enemies, but that the day of the Lord includes like an ushering in of everything into a judged and restored eternity, where everything is as God intends it to be. He's glorified in all things, and His people are living a life that's truly, truly good and abundant. Joel seems to be like looking much further out like towards a greater cosmic story of God and creation and toward how the story will end. It's like the past, the present, and the future can all be talked about simultaneously when talking about the work of God in the day of the Lord. It's pretty cool. I want us to take a closer look at what's happening in them both, the immediate and the bigger picture. It happens here in chapter 3, and and I want us to look at this in order to reveal an idea that I think is at first counterintuitive, but I think it's the key to our ability to actually experience and even rightly understand uh, the the, the life that is good, the abundant life. So, Joel chapter 3, if you're not there, it'll be on the screen, and we could just, I'm going to read this for us. Chapter 3, 1 through 12. It says, For behold... In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you sold them, and I will return your payment on your head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Sometimes these minor prophets are really hard to read because that's rough. It's rough. At the end of chapter 2, which we read last week, after prophesying God's judgment toward his own people, Joel then painted a picture of a future redemption and a future restoration of God's people and of Judah. And then, as we just read, Joel envisions the judgment of God turning from his people and turning towards the surrounding nations. 
And in 3.2, like we just read, God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there's no place by that name. There's no actual place by that name. But the name Jehoshaphat actually means Yahweh judges. And later in this passage, the, the valley starts being called the valley of decision or the valley of verdict, which goes hand in hand with the concept of valley of judgment, right? Like where there's judgment, there's a verdict. So the picture is of God calling the nations together into some valley to come up against him so that he can judge them. And the reason God is going to gather these surrounding nations for judgment is for their sins. Specifically the sins that these nations nations actually committed against God's people in Israel and Judah. They sold God's people into slavery. They scattered them. They cast lots for them. They traded a boy for a prostitute. They traded a girl for wine to drink. God takes sin seriously. Like we saw this in the earlier parts of Joel as God was promising judgment on his own people. These awful sins that, go, that are all laid out there are crimes against God first and foremost. And if these nations, if these people thought that they could treat the people of God like this, it's because they didn't believe that God is who he says he is. They didn't believe that he was even worthy of their attention. He didn't believe, they didn't believe that he was worth standing in awe of or standing in fear of. They thought themselves as higher than he, if they even thought of him at all. But God will not be second to anyone or anything. It would be unjust for him to be second to anyone or anything. It would be to let death triumph over life or to let the dark defeat the light. So God takes sin seriously and he deals with it severely. And God calls the nations to gather in this valley of God's judgment and he calls them to come together for battle against him. The nations together will rage against God in a battle. They'll go, to, they'll go to war with him. And I think it's at this point that we begin to see Joel's prophecy starting to like stretch out over and beyond just the immediate context. It begins to address the bigger cosmic drama between God and his enemies. Let's continue to read Joel chapter 3, 13 through 16. It says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now, This isn't just about the immediate surrounding nations anymore. There's so much like evil writhing and raging against God in this gathering at the Valley of Verdict and in this Valley of Decision. Like Joel likens it to barrels of grapes that are being piled high and overflowing so that the grapes are almost like crushing themselves into wine and the vats are overflowing and spilling. There is so many people and so much sin and so many enemies of God. The harvest is ripe. The grapes are ready to be pressed. 
And the scene certainly does include those surrounding nations who sin against God and, and his people, but it also includes like all who would sin against him, who would mock God, who would put themselves above, above him if they even thought of him at all. So it includes all sinners, and that means it includes you and me. We can put ourselves in the valley of verdict and in the valley of decision. Understand this. This is a vision of the culmination of sin and the culmination of evil and corruption coming together to take its very best shot at God. This is the part that I think is just really good, and it gives me chills when I get to go through it. It's so good. I want you to remember what Joel said in chapter 3, 14 through 16. Listen, he said, For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Remember that, and now listen to this from Matthew 27, 45 through 51. It's Matthew's account of the death of Jesus on the cross. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. See, on the day of the Lord, when God calls his enemies to gather for battle and to take their very best shot at him, he utters from Jerusalem, Everything goes dark. The sun fails. The sky and the earth shake. God speaks in nature like the sun, the moon, the stars, earth. They cannot remain stable. They cannot withstand the voice of God. So what chance would his enemies have? What chance would we have to stand against him? And so when the enemies come together to fight, he judges. He issues a verdict and it's guilty, punishable by death. That's the verdict. Guilty, the wages of sin is death. And then the world took its best shot and they killed him, Jesus Christ. But he who called sin and death to come and to fight him prevails, right? He defeated death once and for all. He rose again three days later to conquer sin and death and to make we who are enemies of God into friends of God. The curtain in the temple was torn, meaning he made a way for us to walk into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. He made a way for us to know God for who he really is. In the next verse in Joel, chapter 3, verse 17, what does it say of why God is to do all this? It says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then the next few verses of the chapter start looking forward to this totally restored and totally righteous future. Let's read that. Joel 3, 17 and 18. 
It says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never, never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the water of the valley of Shedem. I think that what we should be able to see in all this is that all of this judgment, what we've got to see in all of this judgment of his own people, the judgment of the surrounding nations, the judgment of all who sin and do not know God for who he really is and therefore do not worship him alone, what we need to see in all this judgment is that it's toward the purpose of ripping out like the cancer of sin from his broken people in this broken place in order to bring about a complete healing and a complete restoration. All of this judgment and death, even to the point of Jesus Christ on the cross, is about making things how they ought to be. It's about restoring. It's about making new. It's meant to awaken us you and me, to new life and a life totally different, abundant like we never dreamed of or imagined. And this is the idea that I said. I think it might be counterintuitive, but I think it's the key to our ability to actually experience and even rightly understand what the life that is good is like, what the abundant life actually looks like. And this is what that, that is, this, uh, this idea that's a little bit counterintuitive, but is the key. God's judgment is directly tied to his restorative work. God's judgment is tied to his restorative work. Like there's no way to restore things to God's created beauty and purpose without dealing with the sin that ravages it. In creation restored, like the enemies of God's people and the enemies of God, they cannot exist anymore. That's not re restored. The places that once raged against God and worshipped their own gods and themselves will be desolate places. According to Joel, the restored Judah is inhabited forever. Jerusalem is holy. No strangers, no enemies will pass through there anymore. The mountains drip with wine, hills flow with milk, streams carry cool, quenching water, and a fountain flows from the house of God, bringing healing wherever it flows. In the first part of Joel, God's judgment of Israel is tied to their restoration and tied to their right relationship and worship of God. Like when he punishes and defeats sin, when he puts it to death, it makes way for restoration because he's made known to his people for who he really is and so they can worship him rightly and in truth. And in the same way, the judgment of the nations is tied to the restorative work of God for the nations and all the people seeing and knowing God rightly. We know that this vision in Joel 3 isn't meant to communicate that all the nations will be completely extinguished. Just to look forward to Revelation and to the end and the picture of the restored heavens is a picture of, every, of, of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right, gathering to worship God together. Joel isn't just looking to the immediate future of Israel and Egypt and Edom and other surrounding nations. All of these things that Joel is writing also has these huge implications and things to say about will 
will happen in the greater cosmic story of God and creation. And what's true for Israel is true for the surrounding nations, and it's true today. God's judgment is tied to his restorative work in us. He judges and he deals with our sin severely so that we will see him for who he really is. And that's the key. That's the key. That's the key to our ability to actually experience and even rightly understand a life that is good, an abundant life. Seeing God for who he really is and worshiping him accordingly. That's the key. Seeing God for who he really is and worshiping him accordingly. Have you ever seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? The one with Sean Connery as Indy's dad? Yes, we've seen the movie. All right, good. I'm not going to give the thing away or anything. Near the end of the movie, Indiana Jones is making his way through this sort of like obstacle course, right? Now you all are on board, I guess. He's making his way through this obstacle course, and if he makes it through, he'll reach the Holy Grail, which he's been looking for with his dad for the whole movie. And if he fails, well, he'll likely die, and so will his dad who's bleeding and waiting for the healing waters to come from the cup. And he's armed with nothing but his whip and his dad's journal that contains some clues about how to conquer each obstacle, right? So he's like, the penitent man, the penitent man, the penitent man shall pass. And then he kneels, and like, there's blades, and then he gets through without his head getting cut off. You guys remember, come on. And from there, he ends up, though, going through some other series of things, and he finds himself, like, at the mouth in this opening of a cave. And there's an opening that, like, just drops straight out into this deep, deep canyon. You can't even see the bottom. And on the other side of the canyon is a door, and that door goes to the room he needs to get to to get the Holy Grail. But there's no way across. So Indy looks at his journal, his dad's journal, and the, the big clue is to take a leap of faith. Right? He's like, well, I mean, you can't jump. It's too, it's too far. You can't jump, right? It's a weird-looking leap of faith in the movie, too. I mean, he just kind of puts his leg out and falls. But he musters up the courage, and he does it, and he takes a leap of faith probably to his death, and then all of a sudden he's still standing up. He's still standing up. He landed on, like, some invisible walkway that went across the canyon. There was camouflaged from every angle except for if you were on the path. It was invisible unless you were standing on it. But he's found the path forward. It's invisible, can't see it, had to take a leap of faith to find it, but now that he's on it, he can see it and knows the way. I think the path to the abundant life is similar. It's one of those things like you just can't see until you see it. And you just can't see it until you experience it. And the only way to find it is in worshiping God rightly. Like there's no other way to a life that's truly good apart from truly worshiping God in all of life and submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of our Jesus Christ. It's like you don't get to unlock the vision to be able to see what a real full life even looks like. You can't even get it until you're worshiping him rightly, knowing who he is and who you are uh, in light of that, there's no shortcut around it. You can't jump ahead. You can't figure it out any other way. It's only through who he really is 
in our worship of him rightly. The key to our ability to actually experience and rightly understand the life that is good and the abundant life is seeing God for who he really is and worshiping him accordingly. And so the whole book of Joel is a call to repentance. Repentance for Israel and then repentance for the nations and then repentance for us. As we read of God's judgment, as we read of God's judgment and restoration throughout the book, the, the idea is that maybe we would see God for who He really is, that He's holy and just, that He's gracious and merciful, that He's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Maybe that we would see that all of those things are true of Him, and His judgment is tied to his restoration. And it doesn't undo any of the rest of those things. And we should also see that his judgment is both impossible for us to bear and yet easy because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, at the culmination of time, when all gathered in the valley of decision and in the valley of verdict to take a shot at God, Jesus laid down his life for us. And he paid the wages of sin, which is death. And he defeated it so that we could enter in and know holy, just God. May we see him as like a great surgeon who in order to restore, he has to reach in and rip out a cancer of sin and evil that's gripping our heart and destroying us and killing us. Judgment is the scalpel that opens us up to take the cancer out from within us so that we can be restored. You can choose not to repent. You can choose not to turn to him. But you'll be choosing to continue to chase an abundant life within the confines of a finite life. You'll continue to live like seeking to be loved instead of finding a life that is lived from being loved perfectly. The call of Joel is that instead you would find confidence and faith then to lay on the table, to submit to surgery, to confess your sin and turn to Christ. And may you know that God as he, may you know God as he truly is, that he's just, that he's faithful, that he's merciful, that he's full of compassion and love. May you know God as he truly is and worship him fully in all of life. That's the call of the book for us, is to turn to him and worship him for who he really is with all of our life. We've been talking a great deal about making the real Jesus known in and through Redemption Church. We've been talking about that a lot lately. And I think as we talk about it... I think we recognize together that there's something really good about a life and a people who would be about doing that. And that's because it's it's living within our created purpose. It's living within our created identity. And it's what our heart desires more than we know. We've been saying that we want to make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, for starters. There's some other stuff too. But our trust in Jesus 
will translate into our being able to be honest about our failures and our weaknesses and our sin because we know his mercy and we know his compassion and his great love that longs and seeks to restore us and redeem us, that turns us into people who no longer live to be loved but live from our being loved by God. And it makes a world of difference. And I think it would make a a difference in the world. Like he'll make us a people who love the way that he loves. That's the next part of that thing we've been saying. We'd be honest about our failures and that we'd love the way he loves. I think that he'll, he'll make us into that. He'll make us into a people who can love the way he loves us, who are without worry of our own belovedness coming into question. And I think that as we love others in such a way, it'd be like drops of heaven like just falling on earth and falling on people everywhere making the real Jesus known. And it will be a life for us that is rich, that is full, that is abundant, and that is good and satisfying in ways that we cannot even imagine. And ultimately, it will be glorifying to God as it makes Him known for who He really is and causes others to worship Him as He ought to be. That's the call of Joel. May we repent and become worshipers of God for who He truly is and worship Him accordingly in all of life. We're going to move into a time of worship together this morning, a time of response. We're going to do a few things. The band will come up and lead us through this time. They'll come up, and as they come, they'll take communion. This is something we'll follow their lead in. Uh, you can come down one of these side aisles, and you can take uh, some of the bread, and you can dip it in the wine or the juice. And the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and the blood represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The wine and the juice represent the blood that was shed for us. And as we do this, we're, we're proclaiming this truth that Jesus Christ is who He says He is, that He's our Lord and Savior, and we're calling each other to remember that. We're reminding one another of that truth. And we're demonstrating also how He has unified us into one body. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of Redemption or Church or not, or not we, we invite you to come and take and to proclaim Jesus to one another and to remember Christ as your Lord and Savior. We'll also have an offering basket that's in the back where you can uh, put your tithes and offerings. There's also instructions there to give other ways because we know people do that. Um, and so you can find all that in the back. And then the band will lead us through a time of worship, through singing. And this is a time to sing together, to praise God together, to worship Him for who He truly is. Also a time for prayer and reflection. And we encourage you to do as what, what makes sense for you where you are. Let's pray and we'll move into that time. Our Father, I thank you this morning for your judgment that leads to restoration. I thank you for your justice. I also thank you for your great mercy and your great love and your great compassion. Lord, I pray that you would Help us to see the whole truth of who you are. Help us see you as holy and just and also loving and faithful. And would you cause us to believe that we can be honest about our failures, that we can afford to say that we are weak and you are strong, that we can afford to lay on the table and let you do surgery, that we can afford to be vulnerable because you are, you are great and you are so good to us and you're doing great things and you're making all things new 
And because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to bear the full weight of your judgment, which is death. But we can gain from what he's given uh, through his own life and that we would be given this new life, Lord. I pray that you would lead us to worship you with all of our life and find life that is satisfying beyond measure. Give us joy. Make us actually a people of joy. Give us hope. Make us a people who actually have hope. Make us a community of people who are together, who do not feel alone, who know that God is with us always, with each other as well. Help us to be a place where people can belong to you and to, to, to your great love, to your family, God. I pray that you would make Jesus known here to us, that you'd make the real Jesus Christ known to us for who he truly is. And that you would use this church to be the body of Jesus in downtown Augusta. That we would image you well to our neighborhood and our city. We love you and we praise you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.